I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey, on this episode, you are going to hear how an occupational therapist was able to acquire a outpatient physical therapy practice in the state of Georgia. Hey, everyone, Dave Kittle here of the Dave Kittle Show, and I am the practice owner at Concierge Pain Relief, Home Physical Therapy in New York City, and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group. We are currently acquiring practices in the New York and New Jersey area. Today, we have Rocky Salazar on. He's an occupational therapist in Augusta, Georgia. We're going to bring him on in a second. He recently, in the past year or so, we're going to hear more about it, acquired an outpatient physical therapy practice as an occupational therapist. We're going to hear all about that. Before we get into it, Rocky, how you doing? What's going on? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate you were able to... We did a little cross post. I was on your yeah. podcast, the, the Better Outcome Show. And now you're here where I get to interview you and kind of hear about your acquisition. Yeah, the tables have turned. It's wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely. And I was just listening. I listened today to part one and part two of the uh, healthcare hiring and recruiting. I really like oh, the yeah. episode that were on your podcast. It, it was definitely... You talked about like clinician burnout. There was a whole bunch of stuff. So anyone that's interested in kind of any like a span of topics, like you cover like telehealth and technology and yeah, we're all over the healthcare map. recruiting, <laughs> everything. You cover a lot of stuff. So got to jump over to the Better Outcome Show. So we connected. You were posting stuff on LinkedIn in regards to other other guests on your show, and then I we talked and we connected and I, and I heard that you're an occupational therapist and you acquired an outpatient physical therapy practice. So tell yes. the audience just like. First of all, when did that close? Like, when did the deal officially close? So the deal closed October 23rd of 2020, because there's no better time to buy a clinic than at the tail end of a pandemic. <laughs> Incredible. Wow. And so was that easy? Was that challenging? I mean, obviously, we're going to get into the details and how you came about it. Was it stressful? What, what were some initial takeaways from it? Yeah, I think the i mean the closing in and of itself was probably the most stressful piece of the whole thing the negotiation was i kind of enjoy negotiations i thought it was kind of fun putting the deal together though at the very end because there was just a lot of complications with payment protection plan loans and how all that flowed out so there were some like we're going to close on this date it was originally going to be in august and we had to push it back about 8 weeks you know on and off because of just complications so that was stressful for sure so pushed it back because of challenges around COVID or was it the, well, we're going to get what, into the financing and all that. Yeah. It was about what the owners were going to have to do because of their pre-existing PPP loan that was outstanding and how money was going to be escrowed or not escrowed and where the money was going to go and all of that. Got it. Okay. So a little complexity, but you got through it. So that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're an occupational therapist yes. and I, you and I, we discussed on your podcast when I was on your show that most therapists, either they go and work somewhere and that's fine. Or they want to go start their own thing, either a side hustle or they start their own clinic or their own home therapy practice. So you did something different. You went and acquired an existing physical therapy practice. So first of all, why that? Like, why not just start something from scratch? Well, I think part of it was at the time, 
I had left clinical work back in 2017 to do consulting, and it was for a small boutique management consulting firm and got really close to the owner. He's actually a business partner of mine on another venture that we were trying to put together that kind of is is on the rocks right now, but we're, we're trying to figure it out. But um, so he and I had grown close and just talked about business and stuff. And he, at the time, was the managing director of this consulting firm. But he also owned like three or four smaller businesses. One was like an, in retail. The other one was was some sort of service based, a couple service based businesses, like flipping houses and stuff like that. And when we were talking about it, I, you know, I mentioned something like, oh, I'd love to do that down the line, but like getting the capital and putting stuff together. And he was like, it's actually not as hard as you would think to go in and prove to a bank that the business you're going to buy is actually cash flow positive and is a good investment and, and acquire investment capital from the bank, basically via commercial loan to do that. And if you manage the money right, then you pay it off and you've basically leapfrogged where you would have been if you had started whatever it was from scratch. So it kind of put that in my mind late 2018, like, okay, at the time I was working under a contract with this consulting firm that I knew was going to end probably in six months. It actually got extended out by three years, but I knew it was going to be a short term gig. So I was like, okay, well, what's going to happen after this? And, you know, building a business was something that I wanted to do, but it's so much more fun if you're <laughs> if you get something that's already kind of working and you're tweaking it and optimizing it as opposed to like the whole starting from scratch. <laughs> right. Plus as a side note, so you help other practice owners at rehab you practice solutions. Yes. So you you already have a leg up like you've seen how a lot of different, you know, marketing techniques and I know you don't like scripts and we all don't, but like sales approaches and sales strategies yes. and conversations and kind of like the whole patient experience like just for the audience, like you kind of hit the fast forward button in terms of getting to a bigger critical scale as opposed to starting something from scratch, right? That's basically with an acquisition, exactly. you're, you're kind of hitting the fast forward button in terms of like existing patients, existing clientele, yeah. that type of stuff. Yeah, you're leveraging it. And I think people don't really realize the value and the difficulty of building a past patient list, right? Like healthcare is a relationship business, specifically in something like a specialty like physical or occupational therapy where you're seeing patients for a longer period of time. So you develop stronger bonds and stronger relationships. And those patients are just very sticky. They don't often go away unless you screw something up. So there's a lot of value in acquiring a practice that's got, you know, a 1500 person past patient list that you can reach out to or start marketing to. For sure. So let's go back. Like, how did you hear about this practice? How did you no, how did you know it may be for sale? Were they listing it on, you know, were they with a broker? Did they list it on a broker's website? Like they put it on market, it's anonymous, but yeah. no, would have to find out about it that way. How did you hear about it? How did you know that these owners might be looking to sell some <laughs> or all their practice? Yeah, so the, I actually found out about them there. The clinic itself is about a mile and a half, two miles from my house. And when I started consulting, I was reaching out to a bunch of private practices, trying to get clients basically reached out to them and they said, no, we're not interested, but we'll keep you in mind. And, you know, PT and OT are a small world. One of my friends who was a physical therapist ended up working for them. And about the time that I was beginning to really seriously consider acquiring a practice, she and I were talking and she said, oh, you know, the, the two, two people you reached out to are actually looking at, at retiring pretty soon. They want to sell their business. They had listed it with the broker but obviously, there are broker fees and stuff involved. So they wouldn't mind not having to do that. 
So one thing led to another. We had an introduction. We kind of went from there. Got it. Okay, interesting. So then you contacted them, and then how did the initial dynamic go back and forth? Like, did they already know you, or you already knew them in terms of they? One of the other, I mean, remembered you, me. You, you asked them, yeah. So they remember you from when you were presenting exactly. your, your offering. Yeah, yeah. So one of them remembered me. The other one. So the way it worked, and this is probably how it works in in a lot of places where you've got two partners. One partner was kind of like the business person, and the other partner was like hardcore clinician. So the one that was the business side making all those decisions did remember me, and we we kind of chatted, and, and um, she said, "Yeah, we're looking at at selling." So we kind of set up a, a time for me to come to the clinic, check it out, see the see the lay of the land, so to speak. They had already at that point informed their because they had you know contacted a broker, they had informed their staff that they were going to be selling. So you know they that added a, a layer of of complexity. They wanted me to meet their staff as well at a different time and kind of chit chat and you know all of that kind of stuff. Got it. And then, like, how did the negotiations go in regards to the price and terms? Were you know, hundred percent cash flows, sellers finance, sellers you know, sellers know. Was there some earnout component? How did all that dynamic go? Yeah. So there was basically once we got the financials and I had you know my banker and I looked it over and. He was like, this is a pretty small deal. Um, we can put this together very quickly. I was totally fine doing 100% cash and close, but there were some complications again, like with PPP and how things were going to be structured after the sale for the two owners. So we did escrow about 10% and there was a one-year employment agreement. So the two owners were going to work for a year after the business sold. It was two PTs that owned the place and then they had two PTs that were working there. Um, so four clinicians total. And the the way the the terms finally shook out was that they were going to escrow a portion of the, the sale immediately for PPP. And then there was going to be the 10% held back for the, the 11 or the 12 month employment contract and, and all that. So it, it ended up being pretty smooth. I mean, it wasn't anything crazy. Got it. And then so in terms of the financing, because again, if there's therapists <laughs> that are any therapists that are out there, listening, they could either, you know, they might have to have capital themselves, they maybe borrow it from friends, family, or they could do a bank loan, they could, there's an SBA loan program, 7A loan yes. program, or commercial debt. So like, which way did you go in terms of getting the financing for this? So I went, I looked at some of the options. And honestly, I mean, at the time, as a consultant, I was making probably triple what I would have made as a, as a clinician. I was not living that high on the hog. I mean, I think at one point in time, we were living off of like 20 to 30% of what we were pulling in every month. So the rest was just kind of piling up. And I'd considered burning it all on the practice because the practice had been, we talked a little bit offline, but there, it was a very profitable practice. And then because of personal things with the two owners, the business was just kind of declining at a steep, not a steep, but you know, 10% a year for two or three years. And then they finally decided they had to get out of there. And then COVID happened. So the the valuation for the business was very favorable for me. It was less than a six-figure deal. So I was considering just putting that all in cash and just calling it a day. But my banker and my accountant were like, well, hold some of that back because you're going to need it for operational expenses right after the first, which was wisdom. So I ended up getting a commercial loan from the bank. And the way it worked was that 
it was uncollateralized, meaning that the the collateral for the loan was the cash flow for my consulting business. So I, you know, had to show them all the the financials and the records for the consulting firm or the consulting business, which is just me, basically. And then we use that to base the everything, the terms for the loan and, and the rates and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't have to put any of my own assets on the line. You know, some people, especially for commercial loans, banks are going after like home equity lines of credit or, or something like that, some kind of hard collateral. But because the cash flow was so strong on the consulting firm, they were totally fine. And it was a smaller loan, like I said, less than six figures. The bank was totally fine making it just uncollateralized with uh, the understanding that the, the cash flow from the other business would be would be the collateral if needed. I just want to clarify. So then they gave you some extra buffer there for like working capital. So like you got a little extra on the loan than what you needed for the cash to close? No, I, I borrowed basically just the the amount for the, the purchase minus the, the down payment. And then the rest was the operational cash came from the other business. Got it. Okay. And then why the traditional uh, bank loan, traditional commercial debt instead of the 7A, SBA 7A loan program? Did you maybe just that banker you already had a relationship with or? Yeah. So it was a, it was a banker that I knew and had known for, for a while. And it was just a relationship thing. Got it. And again, it wasn't like I was, putting half a million dollars down where it really made sense to shop around for a loan this small. I mean, it's less than my house mortgage. Like it just made sense to kind of go with somebody you knew. Got it. So any therapists that are watching or listening now, can we differentiate a loan to buy? And again, it's, it's smaller, but a loan to buy a therapy practice like this for you're buying a practice, which is an asset. And then, like you said, the asset is cash flowing, which is different than we all had to take out, a lot of us had to take out student loan debt just exactly. to get through yeah. school uh, or to, to do uh, grad school or DPT program or OT program, whatever. So someone might hear debt and say, oh, I, I already have debt. I don't want to have more debt. But can we differentiate just for a second, like the positive side that if you're acquiring a therapy practice like this, it's cash flowing, it's fitting off cash. So it's actually covering what the bank needs, which is because the banks are very risk averse, right? And can we just differentiate any therapists that are listening right now, how they could kind of frame their mind around this as you're buying an asset and it's going to, you know, you're going to decide on minimum monthly repayment and be able to cover the minimum payments of this loan each month. But that's coming from the cash flow of the practice from this existing practice that's already been built years before you ever got there. Yeah, I think you just kind of, you look at it as a, it's a true investment, right? So the money that you put on a student loan is a speculative investment. <laughs> I mean, it's it's based off of your potential future earnings, but you have nothing to collateralize that loan with, right? When you're buying a business, one, it's much... I found the process to be really easier than getting a, a student loan almost. Um, I mean, it may, when I was back in school, it seemed like if you had a pulse, they were giving you student loans. But it's easier because the bank looks at the financials of the business and says, okay, this is, you know, you're kicking 10, 15%, whatever it is a year, the business loan is going to be X number of dollars, you're easily going to be able to cover it with the cash flow. So unless you screw something up, you should be fine. So the bank is very much at ease if they can see a pretty decent track record. So I pulled probably four to five years, I think, of past data on the 
past financial data on that business and brought that to the bank. The bank looked at that and they were like, okay, this business has been around for, I think it was going on 2011. So, I mean, close to, it was almost 10 years uh, that the business had been around by the time I was buying it. So the bank was totally fine with that. It, it was a longstanding business. It was cash flow positive. There was very little like standing overhead other than, you know, the lease and some of the, the, insurance stuff you need to run the business. So, I mean, it was the bank felt comfortable about it. I felt comfortable about it. It was just, um, it was just good at the end of the day. Got it. And then in terms of the closing costs or anything like that, you were using a lawyer or an accountant, or did you kind of handle all of the due diligence yourself? How did that go? Yeah. So I had an attorney and they had an attorney and our attorneys did go back and forth on, you know, finalizing the contract and all that. And some of it was around terms. And again, because of that PPP loan that they had taken out, um, it kind of complicated how money was going to be escrowed after the sale. But yeah, we both had our attorneys and I, as a general rule, I don't sign anything unless my attorney has looked it over. It's just, you know, my own personal policy. Some people will be like, oh, just sign it, sign it. And I'm like, listen, we we might be totally good. We might be totally in agreement on all of the terms. But if one comma is misplaced somewhere, somebody gets screwed and that destroys a relationship. And especially in this situation where the the previous owners or the, the former owners were going to be on board for a year, at least, I didn't want to like have this, you know, just bad taste in my mouth or, you know, either on either end, because we were locked into this relationship for a year. So I wanted the my lawyer to look it over, really just for clarity, it wasn't even worried, like, I wasn't even worried about anybody doing anything underhanded. But again, like, a comma gets put in the wrong place, and you're you, you think you're doing one thing, and you're doing another, right? So, and they were of the same mindset. So our attorneys both looked at everything before we signed it. And it was, you know, probably more a formality than anything else, but it was part of what I felt very strongly about doing. Got it. If you guys were listening on Spotify or iTunes, go ahead and jump over to the YouTube if you want to take a look at the website here. So Proactive Rehab and Wellness, Augusta, Georgia. This is the practice that Ravi acquired. So for, or Ravi, first of all, is this a new website? Because I know you're a technical guy, digital guy. Was this already an existing website or is this something that you changed or, or added? Yes, this is a, a new website. So a buddy of mine runs uh, a it, marketing firm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we worked out a deal. <laughs> Got it. So before that, they had just a, a different website? or It was like a, it was a brochure website. I think it was like three or four pages, not a whole lot on there. And again, a buddy of mine, Paul Stair from Whiteheart Insight. And I have been, we've done a lot of deals together over the last several years. Um, and when he heard I was acquiring the practice, he was like, oh, we can definitely redo this website. And I said, okay, sounds like we need to. <laughs> so there were two physical therapists that were the founders, the owners, yeah. and there were two other physical therapists. We'll go to the staff page here. Were the two staff members, I know one kind of let you know that this practice was for sale. So I'm assuming, so that therapist was not surprised or they already knew. Was the other therapist, was there any surprise or bitterness? Like did that therapist want to, potentially take over the practice or be handed the keys or expect that to potentially happen? Was there any issues there with the staff? No, there actually wasn't. So because they had already, they had gotten serious about selling, the previous owners did contact a broker. So they did tell their staff ahead of time, like, okay, we're putting, we're putting everything on the market. And the one PT, the one that's 
that had let me know about it was actually on her way out the door, not for any bad reason. She was just she was pregnant with her her fifth child and was going to stay home. And she was trying to get a, a weekend job instead of the, the nine to five, you know, clinical work, outpatient work. And then the other owner works there like at 0.75, maybe 0.5, 0.75, depending on, on the need. So she was kind of just there a few days a week and really was not interested in owning the business at the end of the day. Got it. So the reason I asked is obviously like if those therapists were going to be sticking around or if there were other therapists, sometimes there's a surprise factor. It also depends on the relationship between the owner and the therapist and that whole dynamic. So yeah. it didn't seem like you had any challenges there where other practice owners that we've interviewed on the show, they didn't tell their team until the day of closing. Um, <laughs> and a lot of time that a lot of the the staff, a lot of the time they knew or they, they knew there were different people visiting or there was just, they just knew that they heard whispers something or whatever. Up, yeah. They heard that there was something up or whatever. And the old, any owners that are listening, you got anyone, ha- they have full right to tell their team. They don't have to tell the team until they sell some or all their practice, right? That day. Or yeah. I've had other owners on the podcast where they say that they're telling their team, you know, two weeks before the date of closing, like whatever, you know, future date that they've agreed on that the buyer and the seller have agreed on um, they might get their team together and and kind of tell them about what's going on ahead of time even though there's already like a date kind of penciled in for the close so i just it's always interesting to hear when when therapists know when they find out and how does that all go so these the two owners were i mean they were it was a small practice they were a very tight-knit group and i think they were just a little bit more open with with everybody and everybody the other two clinicians and the the front office person knew kind of the the family situations about the owners, and they knew that it wasn't tenable for them to keep the business long term. I think they were just kind of happy to see it see it not close down, right? For sure. So they wanted that like legacy piece. They wanted the the reputation, the legacy to keep going, and yeah. they you know you came along and and you have the marketing background, the the business mind as well. So and you're a clinic, you're also you're, you're a clinician, so you're a therapist, and they probably look to you as like, hey, this would be like the perfect steward to like keep this thing going. Yeah, well, and at the time, there were not too many people that were interested in purchasing clinics other than one other major player, who's like a mid regional player in our in the southeast, who was gobbling up clinics and uh, (laughs) was it Cora? No, it was not. It was Georgia line. they were actually recently acquired by Atletico. Um, and I think Georgia Lina, they, at the time, they had 14 or 15 clinics, and they, their goal was to get to, to 20 clinics by 2020. So they were on a pretty steep growth trajectory. And their their model of doing business was just different. It's probably your traditional box therapy, high volume, high productivity, just that kind of crank them out business model. And the two owners felt very strongly about one-on-one care and you know they they probably were not as profitable as something like a a high volume clinic would have been but their patients were super super loyal and super valued it so and that's something that we've tried to build on here because again that's kind of like the whole topic of my book that's coming out in october is it's all about humanizing healthcare again and getting that human element back into into the care side of things so they they had one original offer from that that big group, and their terms were apparently very stringent, and it was almost like an act we hire. They were wanting clinicians more so than the than the practice itself. 
um, because they had a location that was about a block and a half, two blocks from the clinic. So they were not interested. They were not interested in in that clinic. They were interested in in the in the clinicians. (laughs) And one of the owners told me they were like, I mean, we could sell to them, but I think it would be like selling our soul and dying a little bit inside. So, I mean, they were happy to sell to me. I was happy to to get the clinic. It, it was a win-win for everybody. Yeah, and, and that's funny because there's several owners that we're speaking with right now, and they say the same type of thing. They've actually said, and there, there's nothing wrong with, you know, the cor- different corporate models and what they're yeah. doing as long as it's legal and compliant. But there are several owners that have said to us, like, they're like, hey, Dave, I, I would I would really rather sell to you, or I would rather sell to a group like yours and it sounds like that's kind of what you found with these owners. Like they wanted to sell to a clinician and they said to you, like they would rather not sell to a corporate. And it sounds like they would have, now you didn't mention this until just now, but it sounds like they would have shut down that clinic office anyway. Like you said, Aquahire, they were really just looking for the, the full-time or the part-time therapist. Yeah. They were just trying to hire clinicians. So, I mean, at some point, and this is probably more opinion than it is fact, but at some point, all of this consolidation in the market is going to hit head at some point. It's not, it's not sustainable. Some of these organizations are growing and they've, they've gotten to the point where the only way they can grow right now is through acquisition. And the, the question is how long of a runway is there before either the capital drives up or, or something falls awry in the system. So I think there are some owners rightfully so that are looking at, a potential offer, a potential acquisition by one of these big box players and and looking at the the future and saying, well, there's going to be a contraction perhaps. And at what point do they just start hacking locations that aren't meeting the meeting the cut, right? Yeah, I'm sure that's going to happen. I still can't believe a lot of these bigger corporates are popping up de novo startup locations. I yeah. just I can't believe it. In the New York City New Jersey, Philly, PA area, popping up new locations. And it's like, I mean, obviously they've done X amount of, you know, market research, but it's like, is, do they really have that many like physician relationships to be referring? Like you said, it's, it's basically like a Starbucks approach or a McDonald's approach where yeah. it's just like as many nearby locations as possible. And maybe the approach is instead of having, you know, a medium amount of highly profitable clinics, it's like having more locations that are less profitable, but they still have a bigger reach and maybe they make it up on volume. Yeah, economies of scale, for sure. So interesting. Instead of like, instead of a practice that, let's just say a brick and mortar office that is doing a million dollars a year in revenue and like 200 grand in in profit, maybe they're okay with having, I don't know, twice the amount of locations or or 1.5 the amount of locations where they're doing like, I don't know, five or 600 K in revenue and like maybe a hundred grand in profit. Yeah. But, but they have more reach like brick and mortar. Yeah, no, it's definitely a, it's a geographical play and then it's a volume play. Yeah. How about, so you entering this practice, so proactive, you're, you, uh, buy it, you take it over any pushback or resistance from the front desk staff. Sometimes as we all know, there's front desk staff that, yeah, if they've been working there for five years, 10 years, I don't know how long they've been working there. And then you come in with like, you have a lot of energy, these new ideas, you might want them to say different things over the phone, there might be some training involved. Any pushback, any pushback or resistance from the front desk folks? There was a little. And the front office person actually left about a month after I purchased the clinic, her mother had dementia and was getting put in a a care home. And it was one of those like, she had to leave. And it was 
So I spent about a month and a half while I was recruiting somebody, answering the phones, doing all the front desk work, all of that admin back office stuff. It was intense. So I basically got to start from scratch <laughs> when I hired a, a new front office person. And so on the website, I think I saw two folks. Do you, so do you have two individuals yes. working the, the front desk now? Yeah. So we've got Stephanie runs our front office, does all the scheduling. And then Missy does a lot of the financial stuff, the billing, the eligibility verifications, all that kind of stuff. And how does that work? Like if your office, I'm assuming your office is probably open. Is it open more than 40 hours a week? And then if you have a front desk person that some hours of operation, they're not there? Or how does that work? Yeah, so there's there's a little bit of tag teaming. So we have two late days a week that we're open till 7pm. And it they, they just swap off somebody has a late night on Tuesday, and somebody has a late night on on Thursday, and they come in a little later or whatever. So it's not too difficult. And because I feel very strongly about having systems in place that can just be taught to somebody, it does not require a whole lot of oversight or special training or anything like that. So like I can have the person that normally is doing eligibility verification answering the front, you know, answering the phone, scheduling patients and that because she's kind of got a, a framework to follow and, and that kind of thing. Got it. So you help other owners with rehab you practice solutions. You help a lot of practice owners historically with kind of consulting. And now it's like yes. you have you have like your own place now, your own practice. So um, what things have you already implemented? So one thing we showed was the website. What other is it training front desk? Is it training clinicians? Is it? Is there any other component in terms of online marketing or anything in, inside the clinic? Maybe it's like design and you know, like structural or physical design or layout of the clinic for a better flow or a better experience. Like, what things have you already implemented since you acquired the clinic? Yeah, well, we totally changed the way that patients are onboarded in in the intake process. Right, a lot of it we focus now entirely on kind of getting a narrative experience from the patient um, before they come in. And then we're, we're filtering a lot of that information through to the clinicians before they even see that patient so that by the time the patient comes in, the clinician has some kind of understanding of, of that patient's situation, what their goals are, what their expectations are for treatment, any potential resistance areas or objections, and we can kind of meet those where they're at. And we've had a lot of patients say things like, oh, man, like you actually read the intake or you actually took notes when I was talking on the phone with you. So we did change the way like a, a, a first call or like an inquiry call is handled at the clinic, how we schedule folks. We did change a lot of the way we communicate with physicians and referral sources kind of on the back end following up with referrals and and that sort of thing. And then we have done a good bit of training with clinical staff on how to manage patient encounters and I call it leading the patient engagement so that you're not in a position where you're selling, so to speak, but you are looking for ways to deliver value above and beyond just a traditional here are your exercises, see you in a week type thing. Got it. Interesting. So when you say the narrative component for the intake, is that through your website? Is that through a different app? Is that, you know, so it's digital or or is that, how does that look? Both. So we have structured our intake paperwork to ask a lot of those narrative questions up front. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of making it a, what I call a bottom up approach to patient intake. So instead of getting all of the administrative junk first, you know, give me your date of birth, give me your insurance, give me your whatever, whatever it is. We start with 
tell me about you, what's going on and why you're, why you're calling us. So the, the structure, the framework that we have for, for clinicians and for, for front office staff basically walks them through, um, we get everything about that particular patient, their unique circumstances, their expectations for treatment, why they might have even reached out to us in the first place, because there are, you know, there are some big players in the area. Why not go with one of them? We kind of get all you, of that. You literally, you literally asked them that. Yeah. Yeah, that. we've asked patients like... What, so what do they say? They, you know, that place has a waiting list. I heard bad things about that place. Like, what do they say? So we've heard, well, we've heard a, a, a few things. You've, like, you've heard the everything. waiting list is big. <laughs> so we've got... Augusta University Medical Center is a huge player in the space. They have, you know, a big hospital, a bunch of outpatient centers, and they do legitimately have like a three-month wait list. So we do get people that call and they say, oh, well, my doctor was at AU and they they referred me to their their clinic there, but they've got a three-month wait list and we can obviously get them in in a lot less time than three, <laughs> three months. Um, and then we have other folks that will say, I've tried XYZ clinic before and I just did not like it. Or my friend went to XYZ clinic before and did not like it. Or because we the clinic has been around for 10 years and the the two practice owners were very, very big on building relationships. We have a lot of folks, I would say probably the last time I ran the numbers, it was like 37 and a half percent of new patients that were like totally unknown to the clinic before that have come in have been folks that have um, their brother, cousin, neighbor, nephew was at this clinic at Proactive a year, two years, three years, four years ago, and they talked about how great it was and they're reaching out, right? Or they're a repeat patient. Oh, I used to see Diane or Courtney or somebody, you know, they helped me with my back and now I'm coming back. So a good chunk of what we hear is that relationship churn, right? Like there's just people that have, we have a good standing in the community. We have built good relationships with patients and their family members, and they're they're sending neighbors to us, right? Love it. Uh, same name. The proactive is the same name as it was before. You didn't add a new name, correct? I changed it slightly. So before it was proactive physical therapy and rehabilitation, and since we were coming up with a new EIN and all that new LLC, I just made a proactive rehabilitation and wellness because that was close enough, and it was not taken. <laughs> sure. So. For a therapist that's listening, why would you suggest that you keep the proactive? Like, did you, the signage out front is the same or, or you had to change because it was physical therapy and now maybe you slightly changed it? We, we did change a bunch of the signage and really it was more of a brand refresh. So we focus very much on the proactive. We don't even really mention rehab and wellness or anything like that. It's We're proactive. We still have people call us and are you proactive physical therapy? Yes, we are. The reason I decided to stick with that and the reason it was important was because, again, relationships are everything. And especially in smaller single single location clinics that have been in the area for a while. This one had been around for you know nine years or so by the time I bought it. Like the name has a lot to do with with people's perceptions of the place. Right. Like if we had if I had turned it into, you know, Salazar Therapy Enterprises or something like that, I don't think it would have had the same effect of, oh, go down to proactive. You know, we still have patients that come in and they said, oh, they told me I have to come to proactive. So we we wanted to keep the name for that reason. I love it. And if anyone else listens to this and acquires the third practice in the future, I would certainly suggest you keep the same name as well. Maybe you make the little change if, you know, if you're an OT and it only says physical therapy and I'll, of course, change it to, to rehab or, or, or XYZ rehab or rehabilitation or wellness. Um, but you're you're basically buying the the previous years in the community, like the social proof, yeah. the track record, right? People have driven by that sign like 
dozens or hundreds of times in the last nine years. So exactly. the fact that you keep that is a really smart decision as opposed to changing it. Now that might, maybe that changes in the future because the next question would be, what's your future plans? Are you, do you think that you're going to acquire other locations? Maybe you, do you have plans to open up a second or third location under Proactive's name? Have you, maybe it's too soon, but have you thought about any of those future steps? Yeah, I mean, so I bought the clinic really as a as a case study for the consulting work that I was doing. So I've you know I've, I've written a book about it. I've done a lot of work in the private practice space, and was like, okay, well, this clinic is here. It's the right price. It's the right time. And we're kind of we've gone documenting all the changes that we've done to Proactives from the time that we bought it. You know, taking it from four clinicians doing about 100 and 125 visits a month to I think we've got six or seven clinicians on staff now doing around 500 or so uh, visits a month. So we've kind of documented that. And that's kind of just been rolling into the into the consulting work that I've been doing. And that was kind of the original game plan. And then recently, probably over the last six or seven months, um, well, maybe maybe a little longer than that, after talking with some of the direct primary care physicians in our area, and just thinking about kind of the long-term plan, like what, what am I going to do with Proactive now? I've got it. We've grown it. What now? Um, we have... The reason we did pro-activehealth.com was because I knew down the line, I wanted to offer more than just PT and OT. I just didn't know in what capacity. So we have started developing some kind of uh, some patient-facing material, educational material. I, I believe very strongly that clinicians, the value that we bring to any kind of patient engagement or encounter or course of care is not this. It's not our hands. It's not even the, the cool exercises we can give patients, right? It's the knowledge that we have and how we bring that knowledge to bear on a client's situation. So we've, we've invested a little bit in, in coursework and educational content. We just published a book on... Kindle about transitioning to minimalist footwear and you know barefoot running and that kind of thing and you know, basically where we're going to go from here I would hope to anyways is kind of move into more of a hybrid level of care right so where you've got off off clinic or online resources that are either supplementing what we're currently doing with patients in the clinic or acting as a funnel to the clinic so maybe somebody um, in our area does purchase a course or does take one of these webinars that we do or something like that. And they get some immediate results. And then they realize that they really want to come in and get some hands-on clinical care. Then they come to see us, right? Um, and then it just expands your your geographic reach. Like we just sold 50 or 60 copies of this book, this Kindle book. And I think like 2% came from Augusta. The rest came from from across the, the globe, right? <laughs> One in Japan, even. So like, it just right. it, it increases the, the revenue possibilities, um, because you're not just stuck to pulling patients in for that revenue. And then we are thinking about the possibility of, of expanding. I think the only way I would probably do it at this point is if it just really, really made sense <laughs> from a geographical standpoint. So right now, I'm a big believer in having uh, like you're just understanding the zip codes where your patients are coming from. And we just haven't, there's one area right now that's looking like, okay, it might make sense to try to either acquire or open a de novo clinic in, in that area. But right now those patients are coming to us anyways. And because of our location, so we're on the South side of Augusta, 
which might not mean much to a lot of people, except for that there's between Augusta and Savannah, there's a whole lot of nothing. So a lot of people come up into Augusta for medical care. And we're located off of Georgia 25. We're right off of the main strip that people come into Augusta for on their way to the medical district. So we, we do catch a lot of people and we make their lives a little easier because instead of having to drive 45 minutes into the medical district, they're driving 20 minutes into, you know, right into Augusta to see us. So we have thought about the possibility of moving maybe a little further south into some of those rural areas, but nothing super firm or on the horizon yet. Got it. Sounds great. So tell the audience a little bit more about the book. It's coming out later this year. Yes, coming out the first week in October. They're telling me October 6th is when it'll be due. Or due. It'll, that's when it'll be published and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all that. It's called Better Outcomes, A Guide for Humanizing Healthcare. And it is basically... It's eight commitments or changes that clinicians and organizations can make to make healthcare a human experience again. So a lot of it revolves around... Some of the research that I did when I was a, a professor at the university around taking biopsychosocial approaches or holistic approaches to, to patient care, how we organize the administrative processes at a business, and how we make even the paperwork and the mundane a human interaction as opposed to a very abstract or numeric experience or encounter, right? I think a lot of most healthcare organizations these days are making decisions based off of Excel spreadsheets. And at some level, you kind of have to because of the scale of your organization. But the problem is, when you make... If you've read the the book, The End of Average, which is a wonderful book, um, if you make a decision based off of the average, you're actually making a decision that meets no one or perfectly fits no one. So the book is really trying to tie the the or connect the dots between okay we've got to make decisions to scale but we also need to do it in a way that doesn't lose the human component so how do we marry the two how do we become efficient healthcare organizations that still when our patients leave our clinics or leave our organizations they feel like they were truly cared for and not run through a process or procedure got it yeah that's great makes a lot of sense also, for the audience, check out the Better Outcomes show. Did I said it properly? The Better Outcomes show? Yep. You can find us at www.betteroutcomes.show or at Rehab You Practice Solutions. Just click the link for podcast. Awesome. And I know some of the main things you had on RehabYouPracticeSolutions.com, you have the Ultimate Patient Experience Blueprint. You have the Telehealth Roadmap. You have other things on there, uh, free webinars and workshops. Some of the... like the, I just clicked on a webinar... And it doesn't even look like there's an opt-in. It's just like you just could watch like a 50 or 40 or something minute webinar. Like a lot of things are without even an opt-in. Yes. Just like go right there. We have a tasteful pop-up right that will sh- that will pop up and ask you for your stuff. But we, um, yeah, I, I read somewhere an article that it's somebody in the consulting space and he was like, why are we gating all this content? Unless you're using all this data, there's no point in it. And I was like, you know what? That makes sense. So from an indexing standpoint, SEO, Google will not index things behind a gated you know, form. So it just makes sense. I was like, well, more reach, hopefully help more people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so anyone that's listening, I definitely suggest you guys connect with Rafi Salazar on LinkedIn, because then that way you'll see the updated posts and uh, new episodes that come out for the Better Outcome show. What's other places, whether it's email, Facebook, social media, LinkedIn, 
where else should the audience uh, reach out to you? Though? Sure, LinkedIn is is good. Um, rehab U Practice Solutions. So that's rehab the letter U Practice Solutions dot com is usually a good place to get me. Or Rafi R A F I at Rehab U Practice Solutions dot com. Awesome. I would love to have you back to uh, further help promote the book. Oh, yeah. uh, we could certainly talk more about business and you know acquisition stuff, or, or kind of like your post acquisition. I know you're you know further out of it now, and then you'll be further out by then. We definitely want to help you uh, get more exposure for the book. So definitely love to have you back. Always great to talk about you know therapy, business, and and patient experience and, and patient care all together. So until next time, Robbie. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com or You can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.